Welcome, everyone, to this uh, week's edition of the Commercial Real Estate 101 Meetup Group. Uh, for those of you guys who are tuning in for the first time, we started this group back in August of 2020, uh, kind of in response to COVID. Uh, you know, people were kind of not really getting together to talk about commercial real estate topics. So we started to look for ways to be able to convene in some capacity as far as online was concerned. And, you know, that's kind of where it stemmed from. And ever since then, we've been inviting speakers on a bi-weekly basis uh, to talk about a variety of different commercial real estate topics. And uh, today we have the honor and privilege to have a friend of mine who's, who's local to Louisville, Brian Lee with Stites and Harborson. Uh, they're a local firm. And I mean, you guys are pretty, pretty large here in Louisville. I believe you also have, I don't know if you have branches outside of just the Louisville area, but uh, he specializes uh, in the uh, commercial leasing side uh, from, from a legal standpoint. And so I'm excited to kind of dive in and learn a little bit more about the, the commercial leasing process. So welcome, Brian. Great. Thank you for the introduction. Um, Sites and Harvestin, we actually have uh, offices throughout the southeast of, oh, that's uh, awesome. of the country. So yeah, we're, we're regional. Oh, that's awesome. No, yeah, I know. I figured you guys have a huge presence here in Louisville. Uh, and obviously, you guys do a ton of work for clients, not just here in Kentucky. You have clients all over the country. So, uh, you know, I think you guys are going to be able to provide a ton of value to uh, the discussion. So what we typically do when we first get started with these uh, discussions is we like to learn a little bit more about the person uh, that's across the table from us. So if you don't mind kind of sharing your story, I think that'd be great. Sure. Um, thanks again for the introduction. Uh, well, my name is Brian Lee. Uh, I was born and raised in New York City. I am a fourth generation New Yorker. Uh, went to college at SUNY Binghamton, law school at Fordham University. Um, practiced in New York for about four years, um, primarily focusing in um, commercial real estate and also high-end residential. Um, I moved to Louisville in January, 2021. Uh, after my wife Jessica and I got married, um, she's a local Louisvillian, so it just kind of made sense for me to to move here. Um, but yeah, now I'm now I'm with the real estate group at Sites and Harbison, and uh, love in Kentucky. That's awesome. Yeah, no, I, and and I met you guys. Uh, you know, obviously I met Jessica ahead of time. You know, I'm in the commercial brokerage space, and we just kind of cross paths. And she's actually the one who got me into the brokerage that I'm at right now because she had done a deal with one of my one of the agents in her office, and she introduced me to my broker and. You know, so that's just kind of how it, it all intertwined. And that's kind of cool. The cool thing about Louisville, it's just a very tight knit community and you can kind of, uh, you know, you're, you're not too far removed from, you know, a variety of different people. So absolutely, especially in the real estate space, I feel like. Oh, absolutely. She's a, she's a realtor just for context. I don't think I said that. So. No, you did. You did. You mentioned it. She's an, a real estate agent as well in town. So uh, definitely. So one thing that, you know, I'm sure some people have a question about is what is what is a commercial real estate attorney? Because, you know, obviously you know, you have, you know, closing attorneys that handle a lot of residential transactions versus other types of attorneys that handle commercial real estate transactions. And also there's the leasing side, there's the development side, et cetera. So can you kind of elaborate a little bit on what exactly the, the, the nuances are for commercial real estate attorneys? Sure. Um, I, I think um, my, my job, I think there's, there's a little bit more due diligence. Um, I mean, with, a, I guess with a trend, just a closing attorney, it's really just about the transaction, one and done. Um, maybe there's there's less of a relationship unless you have repeat clients who are closing um, multiple properties for you. But I, I think on the commercial end, it's it's more of a more of an ongoing relationship because once you acquire a property and once you, um, you know, I'm, I'm assuming usually um, owners will, will obtain financing. Um, so we have, there's lender concerns there. Um, throughout the length of the loan, um, as you um, 
sign sign leases. I mean, you're you're the owner of the property. You've you've got stuff going on with this asset, you know, for for years as long as you you hold it. So I think you know once you have an attorney who is you know familiar with your property, helped you acquire it, um, it's just a bit more streamlined to to stick with the same person if the relationship works. Uh, that's probably one of the main differences, just the, the the nature of the relationship. Absolutely, yeah, I know, and, and especially on the leasing end, like you said, I mean, you're you're going to be with these individuals probably for the rest of their careers a lot of times, and and you know when you start dealing with the volume that you guys are doing, you guys work with REITs and you work with a lot of larger companies that own properties all across the nation. You start getting into these you know very different in intricacies uh, of the lease agreements and trying to think of different ways that you can you know, make sure that your client's best interests are, 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 are being kept and met. And so, you know, I, I definitely, that's one of the things that I talk to, uh, you know, my clients about in particular, because a lot of times they just may decide they want to try to go with an attorney that they've used in the past for other means, but there really is a very distinct difference about what the purview of those individuals that are just strictly commercial real estate attorneys, they are. And so I always encourage people to, you know, focus on the discipline. Because if you do estate planning, you're not going to really know how to elaborate on a 50-page, you know, grocery store lease, and what 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 are the nuances involved with that type of uh, you know transaction. So that's awesome. So one one of the questions that I had for you was pertaining to you know what are some of the questions you typically ask a client prior to starting to work with them? Because you know this is something that I do. Uh, not not on the legal end, but you know when I'm when I'm starting to work with clients, there's definitely a list of things that I try to get a, a feel for so that I can get a better understanding of what they're looking for, and then you know ultimately also make sure that they understand the the road that they're about to traverse. So if you can kind of share you know some of the insights pertaining to some of the things that you ask when you first start working with a, a client, I think that'd be great. Sure, I, I think um, you know other than running standard conflict checks in the beginning, um, I I think my process would be. A little similar to yours, maybe maybe not as in depth, but I would like to know more about you know my client's business, what their goals are. Um, I, I just want like the more that I know about how I can better serve and what what my client's goals are, it would affect the way that I would read the lease and you know read with particular considerations in mind. And um, yeah, I think yeah, just the more the more I have to work with, the better better value I can add. So. Um, I, I guess that that would be the first bucket of questions. And then I'd also want to know like what, what level of involvement they will want from me. I mean, I mean, everyone uh, is, is cost conscious. We don't want to, you know, I don't want to work more than, than what the client wants to pay for. And, you know, sometimes I might just be asked to, to read through the lease and see if I see any red flags and they're ready to sign like now. Other times they might want a summary of all the important points and maybe focus on renegotiating, not renegotiating, but, you know, focusing on, on tweaking one or two um, top issues. Other times I'm told to have at it, you know, mark up as much as I can make this as, as tenant friendly, or if I'm representing the tenant or, you know, uh, make it as, as, as client friendly as possible. Absolutely. Yeah. And, and I, I know we, 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 had, we saw each other just yesterday at an event and he was talking about how one of the, the, the deals that he's working on was a, a REIT and they have, they're having him go through all these different types of uh, lease abstracts and stuff like that. So uh, it, it, to your point, I mean, each client's going to have their own desires and, 
and, you know, what they want from their attorney and to be able to, you know, make sure that you align and understand what their expectations are is definitely, I'm sure, of, of importance. So uh, that's some great, great insights. So one of the things that I typically like to ask, and this is the, re the reason why I like to ask this is because I run into this in my practice a lot uh, here. Sorry, I'm just going to make sure that people are muted. Uh, but this is one of the things that I run into my practice a lot as well is that, you know, people don't think about certain provisions within a lease agreement that could impact mm -hmm. them negatively, especially on the tenant end. So one of the things I wanted to ask you was what are some of the provisions business owners fail to consider as they're reviewing commercial lease agreements? Because, uh, you know, there's some commercial lease agreements that are, you know, two, three pages long. And then there's some that are, you know, 50. I've seen I've seen 50 page leases before that I'm just dumbfounded as to why you would need so much verbiage to stipulate the relationship. But again, there's ultimately a reason why that's in place. But if you could elaborate a little bit on some of that, I think that'd be helpful. Sure. Um, I think there, I think that oftentimes business owners might tend to focus on uh, maybe too heavily on, on base rent and just the term or the duration of the lease. Um, maybe not as not pay as much attention to, to other things. Um, some of the monetary terms that I think um, sometimes fly under the radar or, you know, kind of the, the share of the operating expenses or, or uh, real estate taxes that might be passed to the business owner. Um, sometimes they include things like um, capital improvements to the property, these which are typically, you know, really should be landlord's expenses or, you know, building up landlord's reserves for, you know, a rainy day or something like that. And you know, that's typically not part of the general day-to-day -day maintenance of the property. So I would try to exclude that, you know, for, on the tenant end. Um, also, I guess, late fees and charges, um, there, there could be, uh, it could be a lot higher than, than um, tenants would like. Um, sometimes there are other things that might not necessarily be a, what you would think of as being a default under the lease that, that might trigger um, additional fees that um, people should look out for. Um, on the non-monetary uh, terms of the lease, um, I think one of the big ones would be the ability to to assign the lease. Um, like if you're a business owner and you you if you get to the point where you would like to sell your business to someone else or maybe just some of the assets um, like the lease, uh, the ability to to assign would be very important. And um, a lot of times we will try to um, include a you know permit a permitted transfer. Um, set of provisions where you can assign it to a, to an affiliate of your business or to a parent entity, um, or you know, in the event that you're selling the business, we want it to be able to go to the successor entity, whoever purchases your property. Um, we wanna be able to assign the lease without getting the landlord's approval because um, ultimately they're gonna be on the hook. Um, there might need to be some sort of carve out, like maybe their network worth might have to be equal to to your net worth or, or higher, um, but there are ways to, to do this where you don't necessarily will you won't necessarily trip up your your other side of the transaction where you're trying to sell your business. Definitely, no, for sure. I, I couldn't agree more on that front, especially the assignment piece. I, I I run a lot a lot of times into clients that you know, especially those who are just getting started, where they're you know they they're they're they think the world of what's going to happen. They're going to, you know, expand and do all these different things, but they don't realize that it's always good to kind of have a backup plan just in case, especially in the subleasing part of things like having the, the flexibility to do that is important. And obviously I, the co-tenancy piece, which, cause I'm in the retail space. 
Uh, so, you know, I'm sorry, not co-tenancy, but essentially restricting the, the uses on site sometimes, in particular on shopping center deals. Um, because if you don't want to be located next to a liquor store, if you're a liquor store owner and you know, you're in a shopping center and then the, the tenant or the, the owner tries to put in another liquor store right next door, that's not going to be good for business. So having some restrictions or at least just have a discussion about what that looks like is something I've come across in my end. And obviously I'm not a lawyer, so I definitely did not negotiate any type of, you know, verbiage or anything like that. But these are just some of the things that I, I saw as well on my front. So I actually uh, just, um, earlier this last week, um, I think to your point, um, permitted uses or, or restrictions on the use are, are, are key. Um, I was reviewing a lease earlier this week where um, it was for like a, an oil change, like a Jiffy Lube um, type of, of um, business. And um, they had a provision in there saying that tenant is not allowed to do anything that directly or indirectly that may result in, you know, hazardous materials contaminating the property. I'm like, what? That's pretty odd having it for an oil change facility because you can have, you know, trace amounts. Yeah, I know it's probably not what the landlord meant, but that's what was stated in that old lease. Yeah, no, 100 percent. And and sometimes and again, it's probably the greatest thing in the world. But some people, when they when they come up with these commercial lease agreements, it's just like a template. So they don't really have a commercial real estate attorney review the lease to make sure that it in fact is encompassing exactly what they want to do. And I, and I've seen some lease templates where I'm like, you definitely just printed this off, you know, online somewhere and like, just kind of use it as a cookie cutter thing. Cause you don't want to have to worry about trying to spend an extra, however much to get the lease organized in a way so that it actually accomplishes what you're trying to accomplish. So, um, but yeah, that, I mean, it's, it's uh, definitely good, good insights that you shared pertaining to that. So one thing I also wanted to share is obviously that's more of the business owner and tenant side, which is a big part of the commercial real estate business. But the other side is also the ownership. So we have a lot of people here that are either representing owners in the leasing of property and or their owners themselves. And they're looking to, to secure tenants uh, in their buildings. And so I, I thought, you know, I'd kind of give you an opportunity to talk a little bit about some of the items that, you know, landlords don't really consider as they're looking at properties to fill. So um i think first off i think you mentioned this earlier but um just having a good form of the lease i mean i think typically you you want to treat tenants generally the same you might tweak a few things here and there but you want to have for each property i'd say you, you'd want to have one form that you use for all of the uh general form that you use for all the tenants at that property um and you know if, you're you're the one preparing the form so typically you want a lease that'll be landlord friendly um to start off with and then you know you can negotiate it to however um whatever the tenant will agree to um i'd say another consideration um and it sounds pretty basic but you you wouldn't believe how often we see it but we want to make sure that the tenant is a validly existing entity uh, that is registered in the state um, that the property is located in um, you want to make sure that, you know, you, you actually have created legal obligations. If, you know, the person signing or the entity signing the lease doesn't exist, then you can't really uh, go after them in the same way if they don't um, uphold their end of the lease. Um, another one I, I somewhat mentioned earlier, um, you know, um, typically property owners will have, have financing on the property, um, trying to leverage and increase their, um, you know, their cash on cash return. Um, that, you know, oftentimes lenders will have leasing requirements, um, on, in, in their loan documents, um, 
sometimes you know affecting the duration of the lease. Um, you want to have your um, debt to income ratio being above a certain amount. Um, oftentimes they'll they'll um, affect how much rent you can charge. Um, typically, none of the leases are allowed to have any um, rights of first refusal to purchase or any sort of purchase options. Um, that way, you know the the lender is is protected because you know they know that you're not able to really freely get rid of your asset. Um, also, you know they're going to want to have specific. Um, I guess they're going to want to um, have to give consent regarding any sort of modification or changes um, to certain key tenants, like above a certain um, square footage, or you know just anchor tenants if it's like a you know shopping center. Um, you you want to keep the lenders happy, otherwise you know, you'll risk running default on your loan. And um, that's important because, you know, if, if you default on the loan, obviously they can foreclose, but, you know, they can also accelerate the rent, uh, sorry, accelerate the loan payments. So you're paying it all up at once, which is, you know, pretty scary if you're talking about a multi-million dollar loan. Um, those are some of the, oh, and also um, another one I could think of, um, obviously picking tenants is very important. Um, Raphael, you mentioned earlier having um, maybe some sort of might want to consider offering certain tenants um, exclusivity um, rights to be the only pizza shop or the the only um, whiskey bar, uh, you know, or bourbon tasting. That's big in, in Kentucky. I just worked on one where um, there was a, a bourbon bar um, and a, on one end of the premises, and then there was uh, like a, a brewery that opened up or a sports bar that opened up right next to it. And we had to specifically negotiate, you know, a um, sports bar, you're allowed to have, you're allowed to sell maybe one or two types of bourbon, but this is the exact brand and the exact um, line that you're allowed to sell. Um, so we don't run afoul of that. So you, you really definitely want to have a mix of tenants that will kind of symbiotically um, direct, you know, increase traffic flow uh, or foot traffic to your, um, establishment. Definitely. No. And you mentioned the lender piece. How, how closely do you review some of those mortgage documents? Cause I imagine, like you said, you mentioned the, the lender provisions and the covenants that you have to follow in order to make sure that the loan provide is, is, is essentially compliance over a period of time. So how, how closely are you working to evaluate, you know, what of those, what, what, provisions are exist within that mortgage, those mortgage documents? Sure. I, I basically, every time I, every time I'm drafting a lease, I have to turn back to that loan agreement and go through to make sure that, you know, typically, typically, I mean, all we need to do is, is ask the, the lender for consent. But, you know, if, if, if there are enough things that, that I could tell that the lenders, that the lender is concerned about, um, you know, that, that'll, you know, they may come back with comments and uh, oftentimes, you know, these are large institutions. So oftentimes they, they can, be slow or things can get lost through the cracks or it has to get to the desk of the right person. So it, it can add, it can add weeks to um, a lease negotiation where you've, you've, you know, you've worked out your basic deal terms with the, the realtor like weeks ago. And, you know, the attorney may have drafted, sent out the draft of the, the lease a couple of weeks, you know, a week after that, or, you know, three days after that. But, um, you know, sometimes getting lender approval can take time. So if, if, you know, if, as a property owner, if you kind of know, or if you ask your attorney, like what, what the loan agreement says, like 
which types of leases will need lender consent and which just need notice. Um, that would be really helpful because that would help you kind of streamline how you're going to market the property, you know, market how, what duration of, of, of the lease, uh, market the rent, you know, sometimes they might have some permitted use kind of restrictions. So that the more you can streamline that, you know, the better I'm, I'm sure, you know, as a, as a business owner, you, you'd also want your, um, your tenants to be signing quickly and um, they're going to want to sign quickly on their end too. So anything to streamline the process. So I'm, I'm looking at loan, loan agreements every day. That makes sense. No, that, that, that's good to know. And obviously that's, like you said, it's an important part of, of making sure that you're uh, working within the confines of, of what is actually needing to be done in order to make sure that the, the, the property performs as intended and also that you're complying with all the requirements that the lender put forth. So uh, yeah. that's, that's a great advice. So one of the questions that I had, which again, you know, there's, there's people on the call and, you know, that are watching this on YouTube and uh, various other platforms that are in a variety of different property types and commercial real estate mm -hmm. is not just a, you know, the commercial office buildings. It can include retail centers, as we just kind of discussed. It can include industrial buildings. It can include multifamily, even as you start scaling above five units. So, you know, can you touch on a little bit about some of the nuances between uh, the different property types and then, you know, maybe elaborate a little bit on, you know, some of the things that you think would uh, are beneficial depending on what property type you're focused on? Sure. Um, I guess for multifamily, um, typically you're dealing with residential leases. Um, and, you know, from, varies from state to state, but typically residential tenants enjoy greater rights and protections than commercial ones do. So, that, you know, it might make them harder to evict if they're not paying. Um, and I, I guess some oftentimes there are also punitive damages if you as a landlord um, improperly eject a tenant. So I think it, it's just, it might be, uh, easier to run afoul of, of landlord tenant laws if you know with that type of asset um, for industrial uh, I think um, hazardous materials um, is is often a, a major concern especially you know if, if if the space is already you know somewhat contaminated you know who who's going to clean it um, do you even need to address it right now um, if you know who uh, yeah, hazardous materials is a big one. Um, oftentimes, uh, a tenant's build out of a space um, might be more, uh, I guess, more specialized or more specific to that particular tenant. So if you're not able to get the, the tenant to, um, I guess, restore the property to its white blocks or vanilla um, condition, you know, it might be harder to remarket the, the property or, you know, someone's going to have to pay to restore it. So if you know, whether it's the landlord or the tenant, there's going to be some assignment of, of the risk either way. Um, I guess for office spaces, um, those are typically, I don't know, I feel like um, there often aren't too many different concerns. I, I know that there are, um, you know, the common areas you want to be attractive, um, stuff like parking, elevators, you want to make sure that the, you know, HVAC system is, is running um, during business hours. And oftentimes that's negotiated because you know, it takes a lot of energy to run those things. Um, sometimes though, like for medical offices, um, you need to, um, ha they have certain um, security requirements for you know um, storage of, of records um, because of HIPAA. Um, sometimes that's something that would need to be um, kind of worked out, but 
offices are they tend to be a little easier. Uh, but for for retail, especially for a shopping center, um, we've mentioned um, those exclusivity or uh, provisions before. Um, you definitely don't want to have two tenants in the same place offering the same types of service. Um, so that's that that can be uh, a bigger concern there. Absolutely. No, no, I couldn't agree more. And, and, and you start getting into those, you know, and, and, and you do this for all property types as well, but the lease abstracts that you guys create are pretty, I mean, they, they, they could be, they could get pretty elaborate. Um, so definitely uh, uh, important work that you guys do for sure. So, all right. So one, one of the questions I wanted to ask before we open up to Q and a, just so you guys know that if you guys are tuning in for the first time, we, we actually open up to Q and a, so you guys can a ask your questions and obviously we're located in, in Kentucky. So, you know, I'm sure there's some questions that may be very, very specific to your state or municipality that Brian may not be able to answer specifically, but you know, I'm sure there's certain things that Brian can definitely answer as more of a general term. But again, we just want to make sure that uh, you guys have an opportunity to answer, ask any questions you guys may have. So, uh, but before we do that, I wanted to ask, so if, if, if someone's interested in learning more about, you know, the commercial leasing process, especially on, as it pertains to the things to consider, what, 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 what are some of the best resources out there, do you think? Sure. Um, well, if you're, if you're looking for space, I would definitely speak to a commercial agent like Raphael. Um, but if you're just interested generally, there are a lot of uh, books and videos and podcasts out there. Um, but I would say that I've learned the most about leasing um, just just by reading actual term sheets and the actual leases um, that come from those term sheets. Um, I know it's, it's harder to get your hands on those, but you know, if you have a friend who's currently leasing commercial property or um, I, I would recommend asking, asking them just, you know, see if they give it to you, maybe after redacting certain, you know, financial terms and stuff like that. But if you could kind of just see how it's structured, kind of see, you know, Hey, if I know my friend's business, like they, are you know they sell cars or something you know this is and these are some of the things that they have in their lease or that's something that may not you know may not really apply to them or um you know i, I think just kind of reading through different types um would really kind of expand your knowledge absolutely and, and if you guys are in the brokerage space and you you know you operate in a brokerage where you know you have a residential arm and a commercial arm you never know maybe you could ask you know the broker on the on the commercial side to see if you can get access to some of these templates just to review and kind of get familiar with that process. And like Brian said, I mean, attending some of these uh, either meetups or other types of uh, national organizations uh, that are focused in commercial real estate, a lot of times you'll be able to gain access to relationships that, you know, you can leverage to get some of this information as well. So uh, I know you you guys are, uh, are you involved in any organizations in particular, uh, Brian? that are commercial real estate focused? Um, I'm still new here. I haven't branched mm -hmm. too much, but I, I did want to try, uh, I did want to visit Cree at some point soon when, when work slows up a little bit. Yeah, and that's- Cree is another big um, commercial real estate um, group here, here in Louisville. Yeah, and there's actually, so it's, 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 it stands for commercial uh, Kentucky real estate exchangers, but there's real estate exchangers groups all across the country. So, and I, and I, and I know this because I did some research on it and, you know, they, it's a lot of, a lot of times I think here locally, you have to be licensed, but you come together and it's just literally people coming together to talk about different deals and creative ways to be able to solve problems when it comes to, you know, commercial real estate deals. So maybe a, a, an organization worth, worth checking out. So, all right. So what I'm gonna go ahead and do now is I'm going to open it up to Q and a. So if you guys have any questions in particular, feel free to type away in the chat box. Uh, we do have 
almost 80 people on the call. So I just wanted to make sure that uh, to, to streamline it, it's easier just to type it out in the chat box and then I'll, I'll respond. So, all right. So we had one, one question related, related to uh, may I record this or is it available later? No. So we are recording this as well. So if you guys want to re refer to this at a future date, you will have it available and I will actually post the video in the group uh, LinkedIn group uh, once it's all said and done. So, all right. I'll check the I'll check our live stream as well just to make sure if anyone has any questions in particular. Tara, I think you had a question. Are you typing away? Okay. Sounds great. All right. Good. So we have one one question coming in. Um, so it looks like uh, in light of the pandemic, what new lease provisions have become more relevant to tenants and landlords? That's a good question. Sure. Um, one thing I saw, um, I don't see as much now, but I definitely saw, um, I guess, earlier in the pandemic, um, a lot of people were uh, amending the, the so-called the force majeure um, provisions where, you know, if, if anything really unusual act of God situation, like riots um, often did not say, pan, you know, global pandemic or um you know, or if they're governmental, uh, like regulations that affect the running of business, or if there's a labor strike, or even war, I think a lot of times the provisions often have war in it, um, you know, then um, certain obligation, a lot of obligations uh, under the lease are kind of forgiven or kind of postponed. Um, I guess in light of the pandemic, um, there's been a greater push to add, um, had, you know, those sorts of considerations, but also, you know, just any time that the government may just kind of shut down business or prevent you from operating um, to the force majeure section. And then also related to that provision, um, also kind of clarifying that you may not have to um, like perform any construction obligations or, you know, those, you know, um, actions but you will still have to pay so you might not have to do whatever it is now but you're still going to have to keep paying rent um so that's that's something landlords push for that's always something that tenants push back on and you know depending on everyone's bargaining power you kind of shake out in the middle somewhere absolutely i mean there was a there was a i think it was a supreme court ruling or maybe not a supreme court ruling but there was a, a high level ruling pertaining to the force majeure clause early on in the pandemic i remember reading about it because there were a lot of tenants across the country that, that were trying to invoke that provision to you know essentially not have to pay rent and there was a big battle obviously across the nation that people are saying landlords are obviously on one direction and you know tenants are in the other direction so i remember reading an article a while back on that so and to that point, I think a, a lot of, I mean, a lot of people ended up, uh, a lot of landlords ended up kind of just um, taking the rent that would have been um, due in the first, the early months of the pandemic and kind of spreading out the, the rent um, throughout the remainder of the term going forward. I know that was a popular way of handling that. Definitely. All right. So we have one question. I think you you had alluded to riot damage. So in a, in a scenario of riot damage, uh, who's that typically covered by? And I'm, I'm sure that's obviously it depends, but. I, I, I would say, uh, yeah, really would depend on the insurance coverage and type of the lease too. I mean, a lot of times, you know, I mean, the owner would have their own property insurance. Um, sometimes when I say it depends, sometimes, you know, if it's a triple net lease, oftentimes they'll have the tenant kind of 
take care of that. But um, yeah, it would really depend on your insurance coverage, and I would I would hope that um, it would cover that. Uh, yeah, yeah, and we we what level you. Yeah, and, and and obviously talking to a commercial insurance broker in particular would probably be a, a good 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 point uh, to do so because that's another thing. We had another gentleman uh, come on several several two months ago, I think, that was a commercial insurance broker, and he talked about the 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 nuances of commercial insurance because you know a commercial insurance policy can be as as you know skimpy as a you know one million dollar general liability policy, and then you can start getting really granular in what is actually being covered. And so you know. Mm-hmm getting advised from getting advice from someone who actually does this on a day-to-day basis and they read these policies and get an understanding of what the risks are involved with these with your enterprise is, is going to be crucial because what's specific for a meat processing plant for coverage is going to be completely different than what a you know a bike store is going to need so it's like you know there's there's talking to a commercial insurance agent is probably going to be your best bet uh so tara hey tara she says uh, what's the best way to break into the commercial real estate market as a realtor? I have a, I have an associates in commercial. I I have associates in the commercial sector. How can I approach them for the opportunity to sit in and learn? Everyone looks for experience. Great question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and and I can I can even touch on that. If you're looking to get in the brokerage side, that's what I did. I actually came from a a tech background. I'm an engineer by trade. I was a software consultant, um, and then got into the brokerage space and. Interestingly enough, uh, Brian's wife uh, had done a deal with the, the, my broker. And so actually that's what enabled me to, you know, I had met Jessica through networking and I, I just kept telling everyone, I was like, hey, I want to get into commercial brokerage. I want to get into commercial brokerage and just kind of let people know that that's what I wanted to do. And lo and behold, people were like, oh, I know someone who's in there. And they just kind of made introductions. And, you know, I worked, I mean, I, I interviewed with four or five different people or not even interviewed, just to grab coffee with people. And, you know, you're not always going to fit everywhere. Like I, I, I didn't fit with like several people that I met with just personality wise and, you know, goals, et cetera. And then ultimately I met with my broker and we just kind of hit it off. So it's, it's one of those things where the more people you talk to, the more people you tell about your interest in getting in, I think that's going to actually ultimately lead to success. And obviously leveraging LinkedIn is huge. So look in your local area, send messages to people online that you think are doing some cool stuff in, in, in your city or municipality, and then just try to grab coffee and, you know, again, just talk talk, talk, and those opportunities present themselves. Nowadays, everyone's just Zoom call away, so. Oh, yeah. World's your, world's your oyster. Yeah, exactly. And that's, yeah, Joanna was referencing that as well, so mm-hmm. she said that's the same thing, so. All right, so Robin, Robin, hey, Robin, she says, or he, I'm, I'm not sure, I'm sorry, I don't, I don't want to be uh, incorrect on that, but she's, they said, I'm, an, I'm a newbie developing mixed-use project. Grocery anger on the first floor with three levels for loft apartments above. What are e the main? What are the main issues for me to consider leasing and otherwise? I think before, I guess the first level of consideration I would think of is um, typically for mixed use. It would depend on kind of the ownership structure. I mean, as the developer, um, you can kind of develop it as a condominium where you're selling off pieces of the building. Like you have an actual deed that you are giving to, to um, I guess, to the purchasers um, and they will own the four wall, the box basically floating in the air of, of those spaces. Um, and there are residential condominiums. There are also, um, there are also commercial condominium units. 
Um, and if, if you are having a condominium where you're actually giving the other person title, um, it is best for a developer to kind of, to set the ground rules through, um, uh, I guess, a covenant of, uh, you know, a bunch of restrictions kind of filed against that kind of setting, um, creating like the condominium board, which would create, um, you know, kind of like policies for the whole building. Um, kind of balancing the residential and the commercial aspects of that. Um, if, if you're not gonna be selling the portions to, you know, to the actual, and you're just gonna rent them out, um, it's a little bit easier in that regard, but um, yeah, I think that'd probably be my main concern just starting off um, with the actual building. Um, and that could take time to, uh, to develop. Absolutely. And then Joanna mentioned noise restrictions and stuff yeah. like that. And that also falls in, like you said, the, the covenants for the building or covenants, conditions and restrictions for developers and stuff. And, you know, when you're dealing with residential versus commercial on the bottom, I'm sure there's, you know, nuances versus if you just have like a complex that, you know, would be, would include offices and, and retail and whatever. So. Right. But I, I personally, I love, I love mixed use developments. I think it's a very efficient use of space um, you know, definitely growing in popularity. So, uh, yeah, and you did, I'm sure you did a lot in, in New York. You mentioned, you know, the residential high rises and stuff. I mean, I'm sure there's all, those mostly are mixed use. I mean, if, especially oh, yeah. if you're incorporating retail or some other, you know, storefront in the, in the bottom floor. So very much so actually my, um, I recently sold my, my co-op apartment. I know co-ops are less common in most areas of the country, but, um, to give you a sense of how, how, uh, interestingly, you know, structured my building was there were maybe about 250 residential units um, as part of the cooperative um, residential corporation. That was the large, um, my whole building was a condominium technically uh, with six or seven different units. Uh, the largest unit was the residential um, housing corporation. Um, but then there was also a parking garage unit. Um, there were several retail storefronts on the first floor, um, which were each, um, you know, two or three different units. And then there were a slew of professional offices in the second, third and fourth floors. So I guess collectively, you know, they had a, a condo board, you know, for the business owners and, and the uh, residential um, people all together. And it was very interesting kind of seeing the, the financials, uh, you know, um, basically as a, as a property, as a residential property owner, I, I didn't see much uh, common charge uh, increases because uh, a lot of that, I think, was I mean, the building was kept afloat. I think by a lot of the uh, commercial uh, owners. Oh, absolutely, and co-ops are interesting too because I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but you know, with with condos, like you own with whatever's inside your walls, but with co-ops, it's like a fractionalized interest within the the property. Is that correct or? It it was kind of weird. I was, um, I owned, uh, it was like 0.03% of the whole building or something, uh, or rather of the housing corporation. But then, um, so I, I had a stock certificate, like I own part of the company and that stock certificate gave me a, the right to have this lease to apartment 1525. And, um, so I was technically their tenant, even though I was also a, uh, an owner, a part owner, Share, shareholder. Yeah, exactly. That's awesome. All right. So Pawn asks, can you talk about typical, a typical lead time for lease negotiations and finalizing the lease agreement from start to finish? I know this varies by property type, but you'd like to elaborate a bit. Sure. I, I mean, I think 
and, and, and this really will go to the, I guess, it really depends on how, how much you have um, fleshed out the initial term sheet, you know, when working with your, your realtor. I mean, I know oftentimes, you know, especially with my REIT clients, they won't send me a, a term sheet until pretty much, pretty much everything's been hammered out. Like I might think of a couple of things that need to go back um, on, but um, the more fleshed out it is, typically I could just send out a draft of a lease um, and, you know, tenants will just sign it. Um, if there needs to be some back and forth, I've seen some go on for two or three weeks. Um, and it, again, it also kind of depends on how, how long it takes attorneys to review it and send back. Um, but I think doing a lot of the work on the front end would really, really expedite the process. And um, like I mentioned before also, um, whether or not this lease needs um, lender approval, that could be big, you know, that can set you back weeks as well, even though, you know, you have everything ready to go, you've really just about finalized the lease, but, you know, you're just waiting on lenders consent, you know, you, that's definitely something to consider. Definitely. That looks some great advice. All right. So we had a question. Can a tenant opt out of LTA? Um, do you know what L I don't know the acronym. I'm sorry. LTA. Yeah. What, what do you mean by LTA? Yeah. That's a good question. In the meantime, what I'll go ahead and do is I'll, I'll move to the next question and then we'll come back to that one as well. But if you don't mind kind of specifying the acronym, I think that'd be great. Mm -hmm. uh, so Missy asks, is there a preference on which platform to use for any particular type of property in regards to Kreps, Krexi or LoopNet or any other suggestions you recommend? So yeah, I guess that's more listing, listing yeah. properties. Yeah. So probably more your end, Raphael, than mine. Yeah. Yeah. I, and, and, you know, just through my experience and again, I, we're located in Louisville and, you know, for other cities, it may be different, but, you know, we've been leveraging Craxi a lot more than LoopNet. Um, from my understanding, LoopNet is actually owned by CoStar. So a lot of the, you know, the listings that you put on there, unless you have a CoStar subscription or Loop, I think LoopNet has a separate subscription, but unless you pay to play essentially, you know, they're not going to distribute the listing to every party out there. It's only going to be people who actually can sign in uh, to, to, to LoopNet. And LoopNet's free. So if you log in, you can see all the listings. The thing is with LoopNet, from my experience, is that a lot of those listings are old. And so sometimes you, you look at it and it's like, this thing's been off the market forever. And it's just the data is not, not super strong. And, you know, obviously Crexy, we've been leveraging a lot recently and we have our local commercial MLS in, in Louisville called KCREA. And so that's kind of the main point. And then obviously if, because we've been in a lot of more people interested in looking at Louisville as an investment opportunity, we also project on Crexy as well. And, you know, obviously the bigger brokers in town use CoStar, LoopNet, whatever. So it depends on which brokerage you're at. If they have a subscription, I'd, I'd encourage you just to post it. It doesn't hurt. So, I think. Right. Um, so I, I still don't really know what LTA is, but it might be that it's something related to um, the operating expenses or something that's passed off to the tenants. Um, I, I guess just to speak a little bit more on that, um, as when I represent tenants, I would, um, you know, there are ways to kind of limit that. Um, just kind of limit that exposure. Um, I think uh, one, and I think I mentioned this earlier, but you can kind of limit what counts as um, specifically exclude certain items from um, operating expenses or pass-throughs. Um, the other things I didn't mention, um, you can implement a base year concept. So, you know, kind of typically 
the, the calendar year that you've signed the lease, you're not going to pay any operating expenses for that year. But um, whatever that amount is, you know, you go the next year, okay, 2023, you're going to start paying whatever the difference is between the expenses in 22 and 23. Um, and, or you're, rather, you're paying your share, whatever your percentage of the square footage is of, of the property. Um, you can also consider capping uh, the increases in uh, so-called controllable expenses. Um, and, you know, typically, you know, that could be, um, it covers all of the operating expenses, but, you know, typically what's not controllable are, you know, real estate taxes, insurance premiums. Um, you know, there are some other big items like that, but you can try to limit the rest of it and cap it at like, say, 3% every year increase or 5%. Yeah, no, I've seen a lot of times with the, the 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 increases for rents. You know, sometimes they'll specify the actual percentage, and then sometimes they'll reference the CPI, and then sometimes to what you're you're referencing, they'll say not to exceed X percentage. So it really just depends. And obviously, in this environment we find ourselves in, with inflation being what it is, I mean, you know, some of those CPI leases are, you know, the tenants are kind of kicking themselves right now because they're like, oh man, we're gonna get a you know, an 8% jump next year, however, however much based on the CPI. So, you know, it's definitely something to consider. And, and there's obviously not nothing you can do as, as a, as an individual, but you know, you have to consider the fact that, you know, there, there are, there have been high inflation times in life. And so, you know, factoring in, if you could get, if you're a tenant, you're you can get like a set amount that increases every year. I would encourage you to try to just get that as opposed to tying it to some sor sort of index. So. I, I agree. I think from from what I'm seeing on the term sheets, I I, I rarely see a CPI, um, a, a CPI, um, I guess structure. I think, you know, I don't know how uh, negotiations were before they came to me, but I would suspect that most tenants, you know, just really are not willing to take that risk given the environment we have right now. Yeah. No, a lot of the leases that I've seen tied to the CPI were older leases, you know, because oh. I, I I'm we're acquiring a shopping center or something, and you know that just going through the leases and it's tied to this, this consumer price index. And I'm like, okay, well the tenant's going to be in for a rude, uh, rude awakening here. So, and obviously it's all negotiable and stuff, but something to consider. All right. So we, we had a question. What if any federal statutes or regulatory framework is relevant to, to an attorney entering the commercial leasing area of law? Okay. Um, I guess just a couple off the top of my head, just off the cuff, um, you know, just kind of non-discrimination of people, you know, just based on their protected classes. Um, that's that's across the board in all, all businesses. But another one um, that I see often, oh, two more, sorry, two more that I often see. Uh, we talked about hazardous materials and kind of the federal regulations that, that kind of uh, define what those are. Um, and two, um, Oh, um, the Americans with Disabilities Act, the ADA, um, that, that's often very highly negotiated um, in, in build outs, you know, the tenants will want the landlord to say, you know, to represent that the premises are, are ADA compliant. Um, landlords will kind of try to deny that, but, you know, or not deny, but they don't want to make that representation. Um, and it can, it can be expensive to make that um, compliant, you know? Yeah, no, I agree with that. I mean, I, 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 one of our, one of our good friends is, is in the commercial construction space and making 
you know, there's a lot, there's a lot of nuances to making a space ADA compliant. And as you start getting into multi-story buildings, you know, it could, it could get pretty pricey, especially if there's no elevator in place and all these other things. So a lot of, a lot of expense can be. So Joanna, she asks, I think she was referring to, uh, the expense, the expenses. So one thing I was going to, so could you specify exactly what you meant by how long term Joanna? I think I, I may have miss, uh, I, f- I forgot you, you, you go ahead. Yeah. Solar panel leases are becoming more popular. Oh yeah. 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 Okay. So I think, I think she's referencing yeah. the, the length of leases and you're right. I mean, there's definitely, there's, there's some leases out there too, that are like, uh, obviously land leases. I'm working on a land lease deal right now. Mm-hmm. We're looking at a 20 year with three 10 year options. So 50 years total, you know, there's, there's, uh, cell phone tower leases that are very yep. long-term as well. I've seen billboard leases that are extremely long, uh, that sort of thing. So I don't know if you want to elaborate a little bit on some of that too, Brian. I, um, I guess for so uh, personally, I, I haven't handled any solar panel leases. Um, I know that they are getting more popular, um, but given the length of them, I would, I would assume that they are, I guess, tip, similar to a ground lease or, or a land lease where, you know, you're actually recording that lease in the county clerk's office because you want everyone to know that, you know, that, that you have rights to, to, to be on this property. Um, it's not like a typical, you know, five or 10 year lease. Like most of those leases say you can't record it because if, if the property owner goes to sell the property, it's going to come back as, as another, you know, title defect. Um, but, you know, typically like long-term leases like that are, are um, you'd expect to find on your title report. Absolutely. And I'll even mention on the ground lease side, because I've learned a lot more since I've been doing some of these, this work is that, you know, especially if you're looking to do a ground lease and then develop something on top of it, a lot of times the lenders will want you to have certain provisions in place to ensure that if something were to happen and you default, that they can assign your interest in the property itself to another party. And there's other provisions that they, you need to talk to lenders about. And they'll say, look, without these provisions within the lease agreement, we're not going to give you a loan. So, you know, yeah. that's something I've learned about. And, you know, and also think about when you're dealing with ground leases, you don't, you own the, the structure, but as soon as the, the lease is up, it reverts mm-hmm. back to the, the ultimate landowner. And so, you know, there's definitely reasons why this could be valuable, especially if it's like a, a parcel of land that's like super, uh, it's like a phenomenally located parcel of land and you can make back the, the, the investment tenfold by holding it for 50 years and you maybe it's a prime retail location, et cetera. That, that could be a reason why ground lease may be attractive. And, you know, obviously you don't have to come to the table with as much from a, from a, a down payment standpoint, because you don't have to worry about buying like the land itself. You're just leasing it. And so, you know, the down payment requirements to acquire a property or to, to, to develop a property tends to be lower as well. So there's, there's reasons why you would want to do a ground lease, but again, this there's, there's nuances to it. And that's why you need to talk to a lender. You need to talk to a real estate attorney to make sure you're, you understand what you're doing. Uh, industrial leases for those are considered commercial, right? Uh, industrial. I am the attorney in AZ. Oh, okay. Nice. Well, AZ, nice. So actually I went to school at ASU and, you know, I lived in Arizona for many years. Yeah. Yeah. Go devils. I say. Yeah. Awesome. So I think, uh, Carly was mentioning how LTA was landlord tenant act. It looks like, so. Yes. I I, I don't think you can, I don't think you can get around 
that I, it would seem like a gross, uh, you know, kind of conflict in public policy to be able to do that and force to allow that. So unfortunately, I mean, there are some some areas or some some states that, you know, might be um, maybe particularly tenant friendly. And as a landlord, you might want not want to deal with that. But I think maybe it, it just might be harder to um, select tenants on the front end that, that you think will, you won't have issues with uh, because mm -hmm. they're still going to be protected by the Landlord Tenant Act, uh, whatever state specific um, actual name it is. Yeah. Good advice. All right. I think we have time for like one, one more, one or two more questions. So if you guys have any in particular, I'll check the, the, the live stream as well. No more questions. All right. Well, I guess I'll ask you one final question. Do you wish, uh, I guess, what, what do you wish I would add? like a question that you think is important or, or pertinent that I didn't ask you that you think would, would, would be of value to the, the audience. And again, it, it, you know, if you don't have anything in particular, it's, it's fine. And it's not a, yeah. Um, I don't know if I have anything in particular, but I mean, I, I, I do think that commercial real estate's very, very interesting. There's obviously lots of different asset classes. And I know, especially, um, now with a lot of you know, fluctuation in the market, a lot, a lot more people are interested, um, sorry, in the stock market, a lot more people are interested in, in real estate because, um, you know, it, it feels more tangible. You know, you can, you can see a building go up or go down. Um, I think it's a great time to, to learn more. And, you know, I know Raphael puts a lot of good uh, content out there. And, you know, I know there are others like him too. So if, now's a good time to learn. Definitely. No, I couldn't agree more. And, uh, you know, obviously we're honored and, and thankful to have you come on and share your insights. I know the audience gained a ton of value from your discussion. Uh, if people want to learn more about you and maybe get in contact with you, if they wanted to, you know, hire you or, or whatever the case may be, what would you recommend? Yeah. Um, well, I'd love to love to talk. Um, my email address, and maybe we could post this later after the fact, but my email address is B Lee, B is in Brian, Lee, L-E-E. -E at stites.com, S-T-I-T-E-S.com. And my phone number is 502-587-2081. Absolutely. And what we're going to go ahead and do as well is since we're recording this, we're going to include this in the description. So if you guys are watching this on YouTube, it's going to be in the description. If you guys are listening to this in a podcast format, whether it's Apple Podcasts, Spotify, whatever, it'll also be in the description as well. So again, thank you all so much for tuning in. We're always great. To, glad to see you all. Remember, we do this on a bi-monthly bi basis. So every other week, we have speakers that come and, and talk about this on a regular basis. Um, and, and yes, we will be emailing this out to people as far as the recording is concerned. It will be available in, in a video format, which we will post on the group. So again, thank you all so much for tuning in, and we'll see you all next time. See you guys. Thanks,